Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When hearing the Lucan genealogy of Jesus in English, it's easy for people to adopt anti-scriptural notions of king and priest, developing incorrect expectations for how Jesus Christ will rule in the coming kingdom. But as always, the key to hearing the author's story lies in the meaning of the names. Between two Josephs, who fail miserably at continuing what only God himself can sustain through his teaching, lies a squandered gift and a failed hope of men who claim that Elohim is their God, but look instead to the line of priests and kings institutional functionaries of the very temple Luke destroyed at the outset of his story. These false teachers and rulers repeatedly lead not only the sons of Israel, but all of God's children astray into oppression and slavery. Now, through God's intervention, their line and the cycle of oppression are finally disrupted with the birth of Jesus Christ. It sounds nice, like something Rich and I made up, but every last bit comes from the functional meaning of the names in the first two verses of the Lucan genealogy and their interaction with Genesis. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. This is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 478 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The story is in the names. Last week, we spent some time explaining the difference between the Matthean genealogy and the Lucan genealogy. Both are critical to the overarching agenda of the New Testament. These authors are working in concert. They have a very clear agenda. It is anti-kingly and anti-priestly. Always important to remember, it's not priest versus king. It's God versus king and priest. You touched on this last week, Richard, the importance of this phrase in English, as was supposed. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have the cancellation of the human seed, so to speak, with the insertion of Mary in the genealogy. There's this lengthy patrimony and then suddenly Mary appears and you're like, huh? What just happened? 
Now, you can argue, well, yes, it's all about adoption. But remains the fact that the seed which produced Jesus, the originator of Jesus, was not human in the Gospel of Matthew. The same thing is happening here in Luke. It's just slightly different, but in both cases, the joke, as it were, is on Joseph. So on this point, Matthew and Luke agree. We are going to chop it all down. The cutting down of this tree hinges on Joseph. That is, for me, Rich, a key indicator. We were chatting before today's episode, starting on the other end of the genealogy in the inverted Lucan system. We've just heard about the coronation of Jesus as a king, a son of David, a son of man, on scripture's terms, not man's terms, on God's terms. That's what's just been laid out. And then we hear about the emasculation of Joseph, and through these names, once again, it's linked to the other kind of king and to the other kind of priest. It's very powerful. I think figuring out how this fits with the narrative that we find in Luke is the key. Now, we mentioned this last time, one of the key problems is that the father of Joseph is different in Matthew and Luke. And everybody notices that right off the bat. You know, is it Jacob or is it Eli? I mean, even John of Damascus in the first millennium was trying to deal with this problem. And a lot of people have probably heard the idea that the genealogy in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph, whereas the genealogy in Luke is the genealogy of Mary, and that this is actually a father versus father-in-law situation, which in Hebrew isn't always distinguished. Okay, could be the case. But strangely, Mary's not mentioned in this genealogy. So that strains my imagination a bit. So what I would say then is that there's another point that's being made here. We have Eli, the failed priest. Why was he the failed priest? Because his sons were crooks, unfit for the priesthood, and God swooped in and brought in Samuel. How did he bring in Samuel? Hmm, let me think. Hannah was unable to bear children, and God allowed her to have a child. Okay, interesting. I think we have some parallels here in Luke, where Jesus is of the Holy Spirit, declared outright the Son of God by the voice from the heavens. So we have a parallel between the substitution for Eli's son and Samuel and the substitution for Eli's son in Luke. Joseph is the son, but his son doesn't come from him. Yet we have this line, and one of the things we'll notice going along here shouldn't surprise us. We see the problems of the priesthood, we see the enmeshment between the priesthood and kingship, and this right off the bat is problematic for the sons of Adam. And this is why we ended up in the fix we did, why God then had to go around, make an end run around this endless cycle of fathers and sons of corruption in order to establish his son, Jesus. I want to come back to this point that Joseph is the connection point 
and the decapitation point in both genealogies. Because if you think back to Genesis 47, as mighty and impressive a character as Joseph is, Joseph is one of the, the most important characters in Genesis. Still, even Joseph proves the point in Scripture that there are no protagonists except God. Because in order to gain favor with the king, and Pharaoh is, you know, the example of Satan par excellence in the Old Testament, I mean, in the sense that he's a king. There's no better example of a king than Pharaoh, save Caesar in the New Testament, but that comes later, so who cares? Pharaoh is the great example. In order to gain favor with Pharaoh, what does he do? He sells the Egyptians into slavery during the famine. They need bread. As a man under the authority of God, his duty is to give them the bread, Richard. What does he do instead? He takes their cattle and their land. He gives it to Pharaoh and sells them into slavery. Is that the correct action of a man who belongs to God? I beg to differ. And the consequence in the end may be that the sons of Israel were brought into slavery in the land of Egypt. So here, that slavery is being reversed with the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne of David on Scripture's terms, not Pharaoh's terms. So we have to make sure that we decapitate this patrimony the line comes directly from God's instruction because Jesus is not going to sell the Egyptians into slavery. He's going to rescue them along with the sons of Israel. Pay attention to the text. Yeah, Joseph does slip up, and I think this is an important way to read these characters. These characters in the Bible are complex, and we really have to see them action by action. Just because someone is chosen by God doesn't mean then everything they do in the story is going to make sense. He not only enslaved them, he enslaved them to Pharaoh. Jesus is going to be freeing people from Caesar so that they might become slaves of his father, that they might become citizens of that kingdom. But he doesn't extract their food and their lifeblood from them. He expects their life in obedience, but his yoke is light. It's a different kind of slavery, and we have to see how this slavery plays out. But this fits very much in what I see in these names, that there's constantly, among these names, tensions between king and priest and oppression in a way that we don't see in Matthew. 
Now, does that mean it's absent from Matthew? No, it means that it's expressing it in the way that Luke is expressing it. And I'm going to repeat what I said before. Luke is doing something different from Matthew. We will find at times he does copy, and he does do the same thing as Matthew. So he could have done it all the way through, but he did not, because there is a specific way that Luke lays out this genealogy. You mentioned oppression, Richard, and I want to make sure that our listeners recognize and take note that you are not just pulling that out of the air because it's an interesting word that seems to connect with these concepts. The name Janai, which appears just before Joseph, it's Janai, the son of Joseph, actually means oppression. So the names here in the genealogy tell the story. We've said this so many times, and it's important that everyone take this seriously. It's fine that in the West, especially the United States, you like to pick your child's name based on popularity and how it sounds. That's wonderful because you don't want them to get picked on at school. I personally think that's a silly way to name your kids, but knock yourself out. That's fine. The correct way scripturally to name your child is as a parent to think about what you want to teach your child about life, about themselves, about their personality, about their unique characteristics, and about what your hope is for them based on who they are and how you want them to act. That's what a functional name is. That's as personal and as caring and as loving as a name can be. That's how names have worked in human society since time immemorial. That's why names have meaning in Semitic culture, and that's why they have meaning in Scripture. But in Scripture, names have meaning functionally, not meaning in abstraction or essentially or ontologically. They have meaning functionally and syntactically within the story in order to serve the purpose of the author. We have to keep coming back to this basic point. In Matthew, it was to teach us Hebrew. Something different is happening here in Luke. And it's connected, Rich, as you've been saying, to the critique of the king, the priest, and the oppression that the human king and the priest bring, at least here at the beginning of the genealogy, in comparison to, in contrast or contradiction to the notion of kingship that Luke presents, which is totally different than what Pharaoh represents. He's the Ben-Adam who is now sitting on the throne with the title Son of Adam, Son of God, but not in the way that Pharaoh thinks of himself as the son of his divine father. Something fundamentally different. We have to keep saying this because even when we say it, the way that people synapses fire undermines what Scripture is saying. The way that Scripture is undermined time and time again, I like how you mentioned with the names, the names are a hope. Because 
Eli, Eli, the father of Joseph here, who's reminiscent of the priest whose sons were good for nothings. I mean, his name means my God, but he doesn't live up to what the name means. And the next name we have is Mathat, which comes from Natan, which means gift. He's the gift of God. But what do we know about the Mattathias of 1 Maccabees 2? He's a priest of Modin who becomes a king. And his line, the Hasmonean dynasty, ends up being an oppressive dynasty. It's a very problematic dynasty, and it's mercifully ended by the Romans who put Herod in his place. So it's mercifully ended, but not necessarily in a merciful way by the Romans. The story of Mattathias is he is the gift of God. He is what's been given. But how does he end up? Joseph is the one who continues. That's what his name means. He continues the survival of the people. But how does he do so? By grabbing a little bit extra for Pharaoh by selling them into slavery. And then who are the next two ancestors? We have Levi and Melchi. Well, Levi, we know, is the father of the priesthood, the son of Jacob, who is the head of the tribe of the priests, and then Melchi, which means Melchi, my king. So we have the priest, and then my king. We have Mattathias, who's a priest from Modin, who becomes a king. Then Yanai, like you mentioned a moment ago, which comes from the Hebrew Yana, which means to oppress. And Father Paul talks about this when it comes to Jonah, because it comes from the same root, Yona, which is the oppressor. And then we go back to Yosef, which is the way that this verse 24 ends. So we're already back to the ancestor of Joseph, Joseph, who shows that this is kind of a loop that we're going through, where you go back and forth between the priest and the king, and you always end up with one flavor of oppression or another. It's a diptych. It's a play on words. It's functionality right in your face that you have, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and then later, just a few words later in the scroll, the son of oppression, the son of Joseph. Which Joseph are we talking about? It's functionality, functionality, functionality. Oh, no, Father Mark, they're different people. Just stop talking that way. I'm so tired of people talking that way. We just spent two episodes explaining to you that two writers who are on the same page are presenting to you two different genealogies. So in what reality are you talking to me about this being two different people when we have two different genealogies that are presenting to you two different lists of names? It's all about functionality. So the fact that you've got Joseph and then the names of kings and priests and then Joseph tells you that we're dealing with a functional Joseph. One link to Elohim is my God and the word gift. And the other link to king and priest and oppression, which means that there's two possible Josephs in the equation. Which is how these characters work. But Jesus is appearing to make sure that the positive outcome, the outcome that we hope for, the Joseph that Joseph can't make happen, Jesus is appearing as the Ben Adam and the son of David, 
the shepherd who sits on the throne, the shepherd king, which is a phrase we've been using, Rich, in the past, to ensure that the hope of God's instruction is fulfilled, that the people are surrounded by the command of God on Mount Zion. That's the only hope. That's the only gift. We start right off with this loop, going from Joseph to Joseph, and we have two ways that things can go bad. Things can go bad from the priest, things can go bad from the king. It just keeps going around and around. John the Baptist was able to leave Jerusalem and the temple from the priesthood, from his priestly family. He himself is of a priestly clan. He's very much a priest by his inheritance. And what happens? The governor, the representative of the king, drags him back to Jerusalem and locks him up in jail. He tries to escape the temple and gets dragged back into the jail. You know, This is what keeps happening over and over again, that trusting in worldly powers is always going to be problematic again and again. This is the genealogy all the way to Adam. And where does the genealogy from Adam end? The same old, same old. Will the people fulfill the hope that their name provides? Eh, no. <laughs> we already know that these <laughs> guys, it, they don't. It's scripture. It's scripture. We've already turned the corner age-wise, Rich, and we've learned, if scripture hasn't taught us, we've learned from life that people will not fulfill that hope. The only hope is the instruction. So I just want to make that point for our younger listeners. If you're still holding out hope on people, don't. <laughs> Go back and hear the parable of the sower in the Gospel of Mark and then come back to Luke with us. If you just hear the parable of the sower and then come back and hear Luke with us, you'll calm down about hoping in people, you'll put all your trust in the Lord, and then you'll realize what's happening in the Joseph loop in verse 24, and then you'll be thankful that Jesus was coronated by his father in Luke chapter 3, and you'll just keep going forward. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.